If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Internet Marketing. Brought to you by Site Visibility at sitevisibility.co.uk. This is Internet Marketing. Now, before we start today, we'd like to encourage anyone looking for help with their digital marketing to get in touch with Site Visibility. Whether you have a burning digital marketing question or you're looking for an agency to work with, they'd love to hear from you. Give them a call, plus four four one two seven three seven three three four three three, or you can fill out the form at sitevisibility.co.uk slash contact. Alternatively, you can talk to either Scott or Sean via the live chat function on the website. They'd be more than happy to help. Now, today I'm joined by Sam McRoberts, founder of Voodoo Marketing. Sam, how are you? Doing great, Andy. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, normally you're based up in Seattle, is that right? That's right. Seattle, Washington. Used to be, anyway. Me and my wife and son have been doing the whole digital nomad thing for almost two years. I'm going to talk about that because I I don't think I've spoken to anyone on this show before about digital nomading, if that's the correct terminology. At least I can't remember talking to anyone. But... um, yeah, it's funny because us Brits get terribly confused because we, we hear of Washington and I think most of the time we think of Washington, D.C., which is where Mr. Yes. T lives. But there's also a Washington State right in the top left-hand corner, isn't there, which is where Seattle is. Have I got that right? You got that right. Yeah, yeah. Every time I'm traveling and someone's like, where are you from? Oh, we're from Washington. Oh, near the president. It's like, no, not near the president. <laughs> no, it's really confusing. And I, and I thought the, the D.C. stood for Democratic Republic, but it stands for something else, doesn't it? Can you remember what it is? I, I can't remember. I, I did look it up on Wikipedia, this- actually. Yeah, District of Columbia. That's it. The District of Columbia. So it used to be known as the District of Columbia. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I actually don't remember my U.S. history as to why it's <laughs> called the District of Columbia. But, you know, I'm sure they had a reason. <laughs> yeah. It's something to do with the founding for Mr. Washington, isn't it? Because was, it was named after him. But, uh, yeah, so there's our little little bit of um, uh, geography, for our, mostly for our English <laughs> listeners. But uh, we were having a funny, actually, because we were having a funny little chat, weren't we, just before we pressed record and... Um, you know, us Brits have ridiculous place names, you know, Leicester, which is actually pronounced Leicester, but it's spelt Leicester. But uh, anyway. The, the Thames and, and Thames, Thames. Yeah, the Thames. <laughs> yeah, the, the River Thames. Thames. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about less of this. Let's talk, let's talk actually, because you mentioned you were digital nomading. Let's talk a bit about that. How long have you been doing that? I want to say about 20 or 21 months now. It'll be yeah. two years at the end of January. And... You're currently down, is it Spain at the moment? 
Yes, this is actually our second time in Spain. We started here right after we did Costa Rica, and then we've looped back. Like we love, we love Spain. Great weather, great food, chill, relaxed people. Really fun country. Yeah, and what does it involve digital nomading? Because some people, I've, I've heard sort of varying definitions. Because I know a couple of people that do it, but they're like more like sort of freelancers, and they like sort of like build websites and things while sitting on the beach in Mallorca or somewhere, somewhere even hotter, the Caribbean. But are you running your business from there? Are you running your business from Spain? Yeah. So, you know, my business is largely like phone calls and emails, so can do it anywhere. And yeah, as long as I have a good internet connection. But I, I like to say that digital nomadity is basically like you've chosen to be homeless instead of you have no choice. So yeah. we choose to hop around from Airbnb to Airbnb, spending, you know, anywhere from a month to three months in each city or country that we visit. That's amazing. So I'm guessing, does that, does that give you more time with your family? Do, do they, is, is it a better sort of setup, do you think? It actually is. Um, since, you know, my clients in the US don't come online until, you know, usually the afternoon and evening, my time. Yeah. Uh, that gives me the whole morning and early afternoon to go out and play and do stuff. On the beach? Yes, actually, we went to the <laughs> beach today. Oh, amazing. So you're, so you're currently in Spain. So let's, I just wanted to talk about that briefly, because it, it, it is something that I've, I've kind of alluded to, but never actually managed to actually do. Although I'm sort of doing it now, because I'm hopping between two places in the UK, but it, it's hardly digital nomadic. It's hardly a beach. It's, it's between Dover and Brighton. So it's a bit different. But let's talk about, um, let's talk about SEO and, and specifically, um, SEO audits. Now you've got a bit of a story there, haven't you? Yeah. So I've been doing SEO and, you know, online marketing and building websites and all that jazz for almost 20 years now. And I, for the first half of it, I was mostly doing fulfillment work, you know, small agencies, large agencies in-house, uh, but actually getting down in the weeds and implementing SEO stuff. Mm. And I just got so tired of it. I got so tired of having the ongoing clients and, you know, knowing how to fix things, but struggling to actually get the clients to implement things, or maybe they were struggling themselves internally to implement something, but it is just kind of depressing. Uh, yeah. And then I started doing a lot more SEO audits and strategies for people where, you know, I go in, I find everything that's right and wrong. I give them a prioritized list of things to fix and I wash my hands of it. And it's on them whether they do it or not, but I don't have to see if they don't implement it. So I feel good about what I've delivered. And, you know, sure enough, there's quite a market for that and it pays well and people are constantly looking for audits and it, it seems like it was a good choice. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like quite a nice thing. Cause it, yeah, because it sounds like you were kind of going in and trying to fix things and they weren't really implementing too many of the things you were trying to fix or suggesting how to fix. So this is basically where you uh, you write an audit or a strategy and then, as you say, you just leave it with them. And it's Do, do you ever check if they've actually done it? <laughs> do you Sometimes. just walk away? Yeah, you know, I, I actually have, I'd say, I don't know, maybe one client in four decides that they want to do audits on a regular basis. So mm. every six months or every year, and they'll circle back around for another audit. So I actually get to see what they have or haven't implemented. Some are really on the ball. Some take it and run with it. I would say, from from what I've actually seen, probably 70% of the ones I work with implement at least most of what I deliver. Yeah. And I try and vet 
you know, the clients I do audits for. I make sure that they have resources to implement suggestions, you know, a team or an agency on hand. Uh, if it's just one person who doesn't understand any of it, then that's probably not a good fit. I don't want to just give them something they can't use. Yeah. And I'm guessing that things like uh, audits and strategies are a bit more packageable when you're sort of selling the wares of your business. They really are. I mean, it's basically a, a service as a product. You know, I have a, a template that I use that's highly customizable, but still has a lot of pieces baked in that helps speed up some parts of the process. And then I've just I've done so many of these that you know, and I've been doing SEO for so long and seen everything under the sun. It feels like so it's a very streamlined process for me. Yeah, sounds like, and I'm guessing it's quite uh, compatible with the old, the old, <laughs> the new digital nomading um, approach. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And you're quite particular, aren't you, about how you do your audits? Extremely. So so this is the thing that drives me crazy. I've seen a lot of different audits out there over the years, and I would say the vast majority of them fall in one of two buckets. Either it's a spit out from some automated tool with no color added. It's just, hey, we're going to run your site through this thing, and we're going to give you whatever report it generates and charge you a bunch of money for it. Or on the flip side, it's everything under the sun they've you know they deliver a hundred or 120 or 150 page audit that's just riddled with jargon and copied and paste you know bits of spreadsheets and it just a mess you know the type yeah. of thing that somebody's going to look at and be like i don't i don't know where to start i'm just gonna like say thank you and throw this away uh, so i feel like most audits are like that and that bugs bugs the crap out of me. And so I've deliberately built an audit structure that's simple. You can read through it and understand it, even if you don't know anything about SEO. Everything is prioritized based on you know what I would expect the impact to be. Like, hey, tackle this first. You should see the biggest benefit. Then do this. Then do this. Don't do this until you've done these other things. Um, and then it has a lot of like supplemental resources that come with it that help to, you know, all right, here's a problem. Here's all the places the problem exists. Here's the ones you should probably care about. Here's the ones you can ignore, yeah. that sort of thing. Highly actionable, easy to process, not the type of thing that goes in the trash can. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I absolutely detest, uh, I'll, gi- I'll give you a, an example, which has nothing, nothing to do with SEO, but ordering a pizza like I get you, you go to some pizza order websites and there's like a gazillion different options and in the end you just go oh sod it I'm just going to walk down the road and get pizza from my local takeaway it's, yes. it's, it's like ordering a coffee I have a frappe sir yeah what, what sort of milk do you want and uh, is that a large or a small <laughs> 15 minutes later you get uh, you know you finally get the coffee you want so I guess it's a bit of a balancing act isn't it it really is. I mean, you've got to make sure that it covers everything that it needs to cover, uh, but that it's actually structured in a way that will be used, because if nobody's going to actually use it, then it's worthless. Yeah. So if we, just zooming out a little bit, uh, maybe it more into the SEO space than the specifically the auditing space or the SEO auditing space, what do you think are the sort of biggest myths and misconceptions around SEO? I think there's probably an awful lot there's some that live within the SEO community itself, and then there's some that live with people who don't really understand SEO but have heard a little bit about it. Yeah. Uh, so may- maybe an example of both. Okay, within the SEO community, I think there's still a myth about like subfolders are better than subdomains. Right. That's yeah. a that's a good way to get a lot of SEOs riled up. And the reality is, it's one of those things where you're seeing one thing, but the actual reason is something else. 
So usually, if you have content living on a subdomain, the odds are pretty good that you haven't baked that into your internal link structure as well as you have the pages that live on your main root domain. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if something's in a subfolder, it's more likely to have been threaded throughout the site well. So what you're really seeing is content on a subdomain often doesn't perform well because it's not linked to as much internally. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that the subdomain is bad. You can, you can do it either way. It's that if you put something on a subdomain, you need to not forget to thread it through your site as much as you would have if it was in a subfolder. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a big one within the SEO community. And then I would say outside, there's still a lot of people who think that, you know, how long does my content have to be? Is there a specific length? Or how many times does my keyword have to appear? Or, you know, do I need to hire an SEO copywriter? Stuff like that, where there's these myths that have, you know, maybe once upon a time that really was a thing. You needed a certain amount of content or you needed to use your keyword a certain number of times. But it's been a long time since that was the case and people have not been updated. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, what about, because people that represent Google, I remember Matt Cutts mentioned a few things, um, suggestions that are sort of floating around that people either love or hate, such as, I think Matt Cutts said, don't do guest posts. What's your take on that? Yes. So back when he was running the uh, the search quality team, at Google, he specifically said, you know, guest posts are, are bad. Or, you know, I, I don't remember the exact language, but it, it was a, definitely a negative connotation towards doing guest posts. Yeah. Now, you have people in the SEO space who will just take whatever Google representatives say at face value and stick with it. And then you have those who are like, ah, that doesn't mesh up with what I'm seeing. And I think this is a case where what Google was saying and what was actually happening was a little different. So my opinion was that guest posts look so much like any other natural piece of content out on the web, if they're done well, it's very difficult for Google to determine that that content was sponsored in some fashion, if it was, versus content that wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so by putting a negative stigma on guest posts, it was their way of trying to get SEOs to do it less because they couldn't figure out for sure what was legit editorial content and what had been sponsored. And so, you know, they, they still seem to work just fine. So take that. I generally take whatever is said by a Google rep with a grain of salt. You know, they're representing a business. That business interests are different than mine or my clients. Uh, And, you know, I don't think they're generally being dishonest sometimes, but not generally. But I think there's a lot more layers to what's going on than the one they usually present. Another classic one is, uh, is it 301 or I think 302 redirects? I always get 301 and 302 mixed up and I shouldn't because I'm a developer. But the, um, (laughs) what's your take on 302 redirects? Yeah, so I was just chatting with John Mueller today on Twitter about this. Uh, so 302 redirects, Google has said it's fine to use a 302, which is temporary. Yeah. Now, in you know the world of web dev, a temporary redirect means, hey, like for a little while, I'm going to change this URL over to here, maybe for it's a sponsored event or something special, but it's going to go back. Right? This is just a temporary move. And it used to be that a 302 passed no SEO value, no signals through it, because it was temporary. Yeah. However, you have some platforms where maybe you can only do a 302. So even if you've moved something permanently, you're still stuck with a 302. And so I think Google, in an effort to maybe be helpful, after a certain period of time, they haven't said exactly how long, 302s begin to be treated like 301s. Now, a few years back, John came out and said, look, like we do pass SEO value through a 302 redirect. However, the URL that you're redirecting to will not be the one that's showing up in the index and ranking yeah. until down the road, 
unspecified amount of time, we decide to treat your 302 like a 301 permanent redirect. So I was chatting about that, and I was like, look, you know, if you do indeed pass SEO value through a 302, but the URL that you're redirecting to isn't actually the one ranking, then what's the point? And why tell people it's okay to use a 302? Because if you're, you know, if you're permanently moving a URL, you're permanently moving a URL, and you should just do a 301 so you get the new thing ranking as quickly as possible, not the old redirected content. Yeah. 301, 302. You say 302, I say 301. There's a song in there somewhere, isn't there? <laughs> Maybe there is. Well, thanks for coming on uh, today, Sam. We always ask our guests, actually, towards the end of the, of the interview, if they've got a sort of top uh, key takeaway for our audience, what would yours be? I would say, you know, put much, much more time into really understanding your target market. Because the better you understand the audience that you're trying to bring in, the better able you'll be to create content that's actually going to rank well and draw them in. You know, at the end of the day, Google is just trying to answer people's questions as good as they can. And so the better your content does at answering your audience's questions, the more likely you are to rank and have happy customers. And how can our listeners find out more about you and more about uh, Voodoo Marketing? Yeah, so my website, voodoomarketing.com, V-U-D-U. And then I'm on Twitter. Twitter's probably the easiest place to get in contact with me. And it's just Sam's underscore antics on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Sam, and thanks for listening, everyone. The show notes will be in the usual place, which is sitevisibility.co.uk slash podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. That would be great. Um, questions and suggestions, the email is podcast at sitevisibility.co.uk. You can tweet at sitevisibility. Remember that we have a site visibility group on LinkedIn. So that's all from me, Andy, and it's all from Sam. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Sam, and we'll see you next time on Internet Marketing. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.